at this point invite you to please turn back with me to uh, the portion of scripture that we read earlier on and to Acts uh, chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Okay, on my way home from, from church last Sunday morning, I decided that what I would do would be to quiz my son Colin on what he had learnt that day in Sunday school. And uh, thankfully, I suppose, Colin was able to remember something of what he had learnt. And so he began to tell us all, recount the story of how uh, Jeremiah the prophet was thrown into a pit um, for bringing a message from God. And as Colin was speaking, I'm driving along, you know, Colin's speaking, and I could see my daughter in the rearview mirror, and I could see this sort of look of bewilderment, I suppose it was, a look of sort of puzzlement on her face until eventually she sort of blurted out at the top of her voice, but, but, but Colin, Colin, who were the baddies? Who were the baddies? Because you see, in Ellie Rose's sort of childlike mind, no story is worth telling unless there is this very clear contrast between goodies and baddies. Well, as we turn to this passage of scripture that we're looking at today, and as we return to the book of Acts, this familiar theme now of, of the difficulties and hardships facing New Testament Christians, we've got here quite clearly a contrast. We've got a contrast here between, on one hand, the plans and the strategies of wicked men, and on the other, the plans and the strategies of a holy and righteous God. So we've got here, if you like, our baddies and our goodies. Ellie Rose would be pleased. And the plan today is to look at this portion of Scripture under four points, four headings. So let's make a start. Let's consider the first of those. And this is our first point. Point one, it is that here we see that Christian hardship is never painless. Christian hardship is never, ever painless. Okay, if you've got your Bibles open, have a look at what we're told in verse 1. Verse 1b, did you see it? We're told that on that great on that day, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church. Okay, so what we've been told there? Well, we're being told that this martyrdom of Stephen that we've been looking at for the last number of weeks, okay, that this martyrdom is actually, what would you call it? I suppose a, it was a spark that ignited this wider extensive attack on the church. Now, here's the thing. There's a danger here. There's definitely a danger here. There's the danger that we look at this episode of Scripture this morning, that we can skim over the persecution and we can go right to the sort of positive stuff, isn't there? You don't think so? There's the danger here that we look at this episode and we think, okay, yeah, the church in Jerusalem goes through a bit of a hard time. You know, the church in Jerusalem it suffers a bit. <gasps> but look at how this is used for the gospel to go out to, to the wider world. Yeah? Now, we mustn't do that. We've surely this morning got to pay attention to what Scripture tells us here about the severity, the seriousness of what happens in the church in Jerusalem here. So what are we told? 
Well, first of, first of all, do you see it? We're told of the scattering, aren't we? We're told that uh, because of all this violence against the church, that these people, these early Christians, were dispersed everywhere, okay? These early Christians were scattered all over the place. Now, what does that mean, really? I mean, what, what does that involve? Well, I suppose one way we could look at this is we could try and imagine what it would be like for us. You know, just try and imagine what it would mean for us if this morning, this congregation, us in here, we had to leave London because of persecution. Now, what would that mean? Well, we'd be, for some of us, we'd have to leave our families behind, wouldn't it? And at a drop of a hat, we have to leave London. We'd lose our jobs. We would lose our security, wouldn't we? We would lose our homes. All of us, I'm sure, we'd have to leave friends behind. But not just that. Have a look. These Christians here have to go to where? They have to go off to Samaria. So the traditional enemies of the Jews. Do you see it? These people here are not just having to leave everything behind, but they're having to go off into a hostile environment. Do you, do you begin to see? This is awful stuff. And this is terrible stuff here we've got. They've been scattered. So they're scattered. But we're also told as well, aren't we, of the specifics of this persecution. Because just like last week, who are we introduced to again? in this portion of scripture. Who have we got here? We've got Saul. And I said at the beginning of the sermon that we've got the wicked strategies of man and we've got the, the strategies of God in this portion of scripture. Well, man alive, we see here the, the wicked, the evil strategy of Saul to try and persecute these believers. Now think about what he does. I mean, it is so methodical his strategy, isn't he? What is he doing? He's, he's going house to house. I mean, he's banging on doors in Jerusalem, looking for any Christians he can find to punish. It's methodical. And it's merciless as well, isn't it, the strategy? Because, you know that um, sort of unwritten rule of conflict that you often hear that you don't harm the women and the children, Right? See how Saul ignores that. We read of him here dragging off both men and women. It's merciless, it's horrible, and it's meaningful too. Because he doesn't find these Christians and just sort of wag his finger at them, does he? He doesn't find these Christians in these homes and give them a row. Do you see what happens? These New Testament Christians, picture it. They're dragged from their homes. They're dragged from their children. And they are thrown unceremoniously into the city jail. And just when we're getting our heads around how intense this is, and just when we're seeing, no, it can't get any worse than that, our eyes drawn to verse 2. And the reality of all of this persecution is brought home because we are told there, not just of the scattering, not just of the specifics, but we are told of the sorrow of all of this persecution. As these people have to bury their friend, Stephen, in the ground. I wonder, do you see the point? Christian suffering is never glamorous. Christian suffering is never something that has to be skimmed over. The pain of Christian hardship is a very real 
and it is a lasting pain. And I really think that this has resonances for us as a congregation this morning. Because you see, given what we're told here in Acts 8, I think we have to be three things more than we are. We have to be caring, we have to be prayerful, and we have to be ready. See, we have to be caring for those in this congregation who are at the moment having a really hard time because of their faith. We've got to be caring for these people. Caring for these people who are suffering at work and suffering in their homes purely because they profess Christ. We shouldn't be people who just say to them, it's cool, it's okay. Just speak a wee bit more about Jesus Christ. Everything will be rosy. No. You see, the bullying of Christians that happens in the home, that happens in workplaces, it is so serious. I mean, it overshadows people's lives. We have got to be more generous, more caring, more prayerful. And then what was the the last thing? We've got to be ready. Why do we have to be ready? Look at verse 1. On that very day persecution broke out. Do you see how instantaneous it was? I mean, it was like an explosion of persecution. We've got to be ready if and when hostility comes our way because it's true, Christian hardship is never painless. Never painless. Okay, let's move on. Second thing to consider here. We've seen that Christian hardship is never painless. Secondly, Christian hardship is never meaningless. Never meaningless. Okay, friends, I don't know if uh, you've ever had the misfortune of sitting through a sort of management brainstorming session. Uh, I have. I've endured these in the past, and they, they are as miserable as they sound, you know? All these people sort of sitting around a, a, a boardroom table trying to shout out ideas to come up with a better marketing strategy or a better plan for publicity or whatever it might be. Now, despite how painful these things can be, companies and organizations, they still persist with them, don't they? Why? Well, because every now and again, somebody might have a good idea. Every now and again, somebody might come up with a plan that is actually worth exploring. Well, in that first point, We saw the wicked strategy of man, didn't we? Saul going door to door looking for Christians. Let's turn our attention now to something else, to the the strategy of God. Because hear this, what, what we've got in these verses here is something very clear, and it is that God was active in Acts chapter 8. I mean, you look at Acts chapter 8, and you see that, God clearly used this horrible situation. He used this persecution for his purposes, doesn't he? And so what I want you to to think about with me, first of all, it'll sound strange perhaps, but consider with me here the multitudes. Consider the multitudes. You see, we're told that pretty much, pretty much the whole church of Jerusalem was scattered in this persecution. Think about that, please. I urge you, think of what that means. The whole church is scattered. Now, think about the fact 
that God has waited. You see, since Pentecost, even before Pentecost, Satan, the evil one, has been chomping at the bit, hasn't he? I mean, all the way through Acts, you see Satan, he's been desperate to sort of attack these, these, these New Testament believers, to attack this church. But what has God done? God has restrained Satan. God has kept him on a leash until when? Until what has happened? Do you see? Until Acts 8, until the church has grown. Until there's not just 120 believers in a room somewhere, but till here, there are thousands and thousands of believers already to be scattered across the land. It's wonderful. Consider the multitude here. And then also consider the meaning, please. Consider why it was that God allowed this persecution to happen. You see, I have, um, I've said it before and I'll say it again, uh, that it's, it's actually quite useful when we as a congregation are going through a book like this to just take a step back now and again and to think big picture stuff, isn't it? You know, just to sort of remind ourselves, what is this book about? What's the purpose here? So I ask you, somebody was to, to question you, what's Acts about? What's the big picture with Acts? Do you remember the theme verse of Acts? Chapter 1, verse 8. Acts is about the church taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, isn't it? Mm, yeah, sort of, but a bit more specific than that. What is it? It's about the church being Jesus' witnesses. Do you remember the three stages of this in Acts? First in Jerusalem, then where? In all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Now have a look at your Bibles. Look at chapter 8 and verse 1. Look what we've got here. We've got the church doing this. We've got the church taking the gospel to all Judea and Samaria. Now ask yourself, how does God do this? How does God fulfill this purpose? Does he have a great stonking Christianity explored course in Jerusalem in the first century with lots of food and making sure that it's really sort of user-friendly and intimate? Is that what he does? No, look at it. God prompts his church to fulfill its duty by permitting it to suffer in his name. Do you see? God uses persecution to reach lost souls. And friends, I tell you, I think there is real comfort in that for us this morning. Because I, I, I don't know about you, I can't speak for you, but I certainly know in my experience, if I am ever opposed for my faith, I find myself praying the same thing. And I pray, Lord, why did it go down like that? You know, why did it happen in that way? But what we learn here is that though we might not always see the specific reasons why we go through these things. Just like I'm pretty sure that the people in Jerusalem in the first century didn't all know why they were being scattered. What we can know, and it's marvelous, is that ultimately there is a strategy. Do you see that? I mean, ultimately there is a plan behind the hardship that we face. That our God is a God who is 
always without fail using the persecution of his people for the advancement of his gospel. So we see that Christian hardship might never be painless, but it is never meaningless. Never meaningless. Thirdly, we see that Christian hardship is also never painless, meaningless, never speechless. Christian hardship is never speechless. Okay, my favourite TV programme as a child, I'm sure most of you will have heard of it, it was the A-Team. Loved the A-Team. Could not get enough of the A-Team. I just, you know what you're getting with the A-Team, you know? Every episode is pretty much the same, isn't it? That you have, it starts with Hannibal, one of the main characters, and he's got a plan. And this plan will involve the A-Team sort of disappearing into a workshop somewhere. Moments later, they will come out in a sort of tank, a stroke van type machine that they've constructed. They will win the day, and then the episode will end with Hannibal sort of sitting back with a cigar, uh, saying, I love it. When a plan comes together. Well, we're seeing in Acts 8 that behind all of this horrific persecution that God had a plan. But what I want us to think about here is how exactly that plan was carried out. That how exactly the gospel went out to all Judea, Samaria. And again, if if your Bibles are open, look with me to the key verse here, which is verse 4. Verse 4. Look at what we're told. We're told that those who had been scattered, what did they do? They'd been scattered because of this persecution. They preached the word wherever they went. And what does that mean? Is it preached the word? As in, after they've been scattered, they got the sort of Matthew Henry commentaries out and they started writing a big sermon. Is that what it is? No, of course not. It's preached the word. As in, these people who have been scattered, they simply told the people they encountered about Jesus Christ. Now, There's something important here that I want us to think about. And dare I say that I think it's probably the foremost point of this portion of Scripture. And it's that this idea we have here of these believers, these scattered believers, telling other people about Jesus, that it is shown to be in this section of Scripture the expected and the essential task of all Christians. That this task, telling people that we encounter about Christ, that every believer is to be involved in it. Now, how does Luke, the author, show us that? Well, first of all, think about this. Unlike other passages in Acts. Remember Peter in front of the Sanhedrin, or maybe Stephen in front of the Sanhedrin. Unlike those sort of situations here, there isn't any mention of a specific or a special filling with the Holy Spirit, is there? Did you see that? It, I mean, it's absent here. There's no mention that in order for all these scattered believers to tell people about Jesus, that there had to be this extra sort of equipping or special filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, why not? Why is that not here? Well, it's because this task of evangelism was the natural and it was the required task of all of these scattered believers. 
And then I would ask you to notice something else here with me. Notice again who it was that was scattered. Now, I know I've asked you that already, so I'll change it. Notice who was not scattered. Do you see it in verse 1? Who was not scattered? It is all except the apostles. See what that means? For previously, it was the, the apostles. Previously, it was these 12 leaders of the church that had been primarily involved in evangelism, wasn't it? But now here we see what has God done. He has kept these apostles in Jerusalem. And now it is all the other people. Now it is all the whole church that is to go out and preach the word. And so I ask you this morning, do you see the obvious implication? It is that all of us in here, that all believers, young, children, old, those who are bold, those who are shy, those who are eloquent in speech, those who are inarticulate, that all believers are to preach the word wherever they are. Get this, that Christian witness is not effective witness if Christian witness is silent. Now, you hear that, does that sound daunting? I would love if you'd see how exciting it can be. Because we hear quite a lot, don't we, especially in church circles, of how terrible sort of gathered congregations are, don't we? I mean, we hear about the fact that, you know, congregations like ours are not the way forward. Congregations where people have to travel for miles and miles and miles around to meet on a Sunday. You know, we'll hear in church circles, that's not the way things should be. That's not the ideal. Well, for the moment, I would ask you this morning, forget that and let us look at that situation as it is. Let us look at it positively. Why? Because we are already like this. We are already scattered. Scattered right the way through London. So if we do, as a congregation, what we are being encouraged to do by Acts 8, if we preach the word to wherever we are, then we are going to reach people from Watford to Epsom with the good news that Jesus Christ has died for sin. Do you see it? What an opportunity. But first we have to do something. First, we have to embrace the challenge of Acts chapter 8, that it is us, it is the ordinary believer who is to speak to other people about Christ. So Christian hardship, never painless, never meaningless, never speechless. Lastly, and very briefly, let's note here in this portion of Scripture that Christian hardship is never joyless. It is never joyless. Okay, what have we got? Okay, think about this. Just as this first section that we've got here about persecution, this first section from verse 1 to verse 3, just as this works from the general to the specific, do you see that? It works from the sort of general persecution across Jerusalem 
to the specific instance of Saul. So just as the first section does that, this second section about evangelism from verses 4 to 8, it does the same thing, doesn't it? It works from the general to the specific. So it works from the general, all believers bringing out the gospel to the specific mention of one guy. Do you see who it is? It's the mention of this man, Philip. And what we're supposed to pick up on here are the contrasts in this portion of Scripture. So we're supposed to see, okay, yes, the contrast between the sort of wicked plans of man and, and the plans of God. And we are supposed to see the contrast between this guy that's mentioned, Saul, and this guy that's mentioned, Philip. But here's the thing. We are also supposed to pick up on the contrast here between the two cities that are mentioned in this portion of Scripture. So do you see these cities? Did you notice them? We've got, on one hand, Jerusalem at the beginning of the chapter. Jerusalem with all of its newfound sort of hostility or hatred towards Christ. And then you've got, on the other, this unnamed city of Samaria. Do you see it in verse 5? This city that embraces this message that, that Philip brings to them. Do you see the anger of Jerusalem in verse 1 is contrasted here with the what? The great joy of the city of Samaria. And friends, do you see that that is the point? That, if anything, is what we have to take out of this message here this morning. That yes, God does have a plan. Yes, sometimes it's going to involve suffering, that it will always involve speech. But God's plan, his strategy, is one that will inevitably result in the rejoicing and the joy of his people. And what we hear and see in Acts 8 is if we endure hardship, and if we, yes, speak of Jesus Christ as we go, not only will joy be ours, But if we respond to hardship like that, we will bring joy to other people too. You think about Philip, think about the fruitfulness of his ministry in Samaria. We will have joy, but we will bring joy to those we speak to about Jesus Christ. It is wonderful here. We see persecution lead to unadulterated, abundant joy. I'll, I'll close with this. One one question, one last question. What we've got here in this portion of Scripture is really a tale of two cities, isn't it? A tale of two cities. We've got one city full of anger towards God, and we've got the other city that is full of acceptance of Jesus Christ. So the question is pretty obvious, isn't it? In which city do you dwell? this morning. Now, where is your heart in relation to Jesus Christ? Have you bowed? Has there been acknowledgement? Has there been repentance of your sin? Has there? If so, take heart, because no matter the hardship and no matter the suffering, know that your God has got a plan. And it is a plan that will lead to full 
and inexpressible and eternal joy. So let's pray.